Hi, I'm Neil Orford and welcome to the Critique Journal Club for June 2014. This is where we go through the last month's critical care literature and talk about what caught our eye. Let's start with outcomes associated with corticosteroid dosage in critically ill patients with acute exacerbations of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. So this Colorado database study examines the effect of high dose, which was methylpred greater than 240 milligrams per day, versus low dose, which is less than 240 grams per day, corticosteroids on outcomes in 17,239 patients admitted to ICU with an acute exacerbation of COPD. They propensity score matched and adjusted for unbalanced covariates to compare them and report that 36% of patients received low dose and 64% received high dose corticosteroids. 77% of the low dose group were able to be matched to a high dose patient and after matching only antibiotic therapy and region remained as unbalanced covariates. Approximately 15% of patients were invasively ventilated and 32% received NIV. There was no difference in mortality between the low dose and the high dose group, odds ratio of 0.85, 95% confidence intervals of 0.71 to 1.01, so pretty close. There was a reduced hospital length of stay, which was minus 0.44 of a day, ICU length of stay, which is minus 0.31 day, and hospital costs, minus $2,559. Also, ventilation duration, insulin use, and fungal infections with the low-dose corticosteroid group. So overall, this study tells us that the majority of patients admitted with acute exacerbations of COPD receive high-dose steroids, and that within the limits of a propensity-matched observational study, this may be of no extra benefit and lead to increased adverse events. They conclude by estimating a prospective RCT would require 4,000 patients to detect a 2% absolute difference in mortality with 80% power, or alternatively, a composite outcome, ventilator-free days, death, readmissions, NIV, could be used. The next study we're going to look at is the interaction of vasopressin and corticosteroids in septic shock, a pilot RCT, published in Critical Care Medicine. So this prospective open-labeled randomized controlled pilot trial was published online in March and has now been published in the June issue of CCM. It provides early evidence for another question in the vasopressin corticosteroid septic shock puzzle is there an interaction between agents. The rationale comes from VAST, a negative trial, 28-day mortality in septic shock was 35.4% with vasopressin compared to 39.3% for NORAD. However, the a priori subgroup analysis provided some interesting results. Firstly, vasopressin was associated with a reduced mortality, 26.5% versus 35.7%. In the less severe septic shock group, that is the group who started when their open label NORAD was less than 15 marks per minute, but there was no benefit in the more severe group. 
vasopressin and steroid was associated with a lower mortality than NORAD and steroid, which is 35.9% compared to 44.7%, compared to vasopressin, no steroid versus NORAD and no steroid, which is 33.7% and 21.3% mortality. Early vasopressin was associated with reduced progression of renal failure and need for renal replacement therapy. That's all hypothesis generating, suggesting that early vasopressin may have benefit and that an interaction may exist between vasopressin and steroid. So the pilot trial aimed to test those interactions and the feasibility of vasopressin as an initial vasopressor in septic shock. They enrolled 63 adults with early septic shock to vasopressin plus hydrocortisone compared to vasopressin plus placebo. The vasopressin dose was 0.013 units per minute and it was titrated up to 0.06 units per minute, after which hydrocortisone, 50 milligrams QID or placebo was added. If persistently hypertensive, then they received open-labeled catecholamines. And they found that 23 of 31 patients in the vasopressin plus hydrocortisone group reached their maximum vasopressin levels and received hydrocortisone. There was no difference in vasopressin levels in either group, and hydrocortisone patients were weaned off their vasopressin more quickly, 3.1 days less, and received half the vasopressin dose, and there was no difference in mortality and organ functions. So the authors argue it is feasible to use vasopressin as a first-line agent, that there may be an interaction with hydrocortisone and a multi-centre double-blind RCT of vasopressin compared with NORAD as initial vasopressor therapy in septic shock, including an interaction with corticosteroids, is now underway. So we'll have to wait and see. Let's move on to two meta-analyses that were published this month. The first, in intensive care medicine, is the effects of interventions on survival in ARDS, an umbrella view of 159 published randomized trials and 29 meta-analyses. This is a big undertaking. This umbrella view, systematic review, examines all the evidence that reports on mortality outcomes in 159 ARDS trials that included an intervention. Of all the trials, 93 reported mortality in 20,671 patients. They found that eight studies reported a statistically significant mortality benefit with intervention, and that was prone positioning in two studies, cisatricurium paralysis in one study, high PEEP and low tidal volume in one study, low tidal volume in two studies, pressure control ventilation in one study, and prolonged methylpred in one study. Two studies reported a statistically significant mortality harm with intervention, and that was high-frequency oscillation and IV oxothiazolidine. They also looked at 29 meta-analyses that tested low total volume, proning, high PEEP, oscillation, NIV, nitric, surfactant, steroids, paralysis, inflammatory modulating diet, inhaled bit 2 agonists, etc. And they found that consistently reported reduced mortality effects occurred with low total volume, although the upper 95% confidence intervals are close to 1. High PEEP, to 6 trials, yields a similar result with 95% confidence intervals close to 1. 
Cisatricurium showed benefit, but three studies of markedly different size were performed by the same investigators. Inflammatory modulating diet, two meta-analyses based on the same data that showed benefit at 28-day mortality, but a trend to increased mortality at 14 days and no difference at 90 days. One high-frequency meta-analyses reports benefit, but the two largest trials, both published after the meta-analysis and each with more patients than the meta-analysis, found no benefit or increased risk of death. And 8 of 29 meta-analyses claimed that survival benefit was present in subgroups of patients with worse background disease or PF ratio. The most consistent observation is prone positioning reduced the hospital mortality in the subgroup of patients with more severe hypoxemia, but not overall. This was validated in a subsequent RCT published after these five meta-analyses. So what does this tell us? That after all these RCTs, the evidence seems to suggest a low total volume strategy leads to reduced overall mortality and prone positioning is of benefit in severe ARDS. There is some positive data in cisatricurium paralysis and HFOV seems to cause harm. Beyond this, the mortality benefits seem to be spurious and reflect chance findings or selective analyses. Interesting. The second meta-analysis published in JAMA is thrombolysis for pulmonary embolism and risk of all-cause mortality, major bleeding and intracranial hemorrhage. So this meta-analysis of all RCTs of thrombolytic therapy in pulmonary embolus identified 16 eligible articles with 2,115 patients. So what did they find? 210 patients, that's 9.93%, had low-risk PE, 1.47% high-risk, and 70.87% intermediate risk. Thrombolytic therapy was associated with lower all-cause mortality, that's an odds ratio of 0.53, number needed to treat of 59. Mortality was 2.1% versus 3.89% in the non-thrombolytic cohort. There was a greater risk of major bleeding with thrombolysis. The bleeding rate was 9.24% versus 3.42%. There was a greater risk of intracranial hemorrhage, odds ratio of 4.63, number needed to harm 78. There was a lower risk of repeat PE, odds risk of 0.4, number needed to treat 54 and a higher risk of bleeding in the over 65 year old group with no increased risk of bleeding in the under 65 year old group. In the pre-specified subgroup analysis of patients with intermediate PE, that is hemodynamically stable on assessment of RV, thrombolysis was associated with lower mortality, odds ratio of 0.48, and increased bleeding risk, odds ratio of 3.19. So overall, thrombolysis provided half the risk of dying and less than half the risk of recurrence, but twice the risk of bleeding and four times the risk of intracranial hemorrhage. This effect was also present in intermediate PE and there was more risk and less benefit in older patients. 
Still on JAMA, association of azithromycin with mortality and cardiovascular events among older patients hospitalized with pneumonia. So the risk of cardiovascular death from macrolides versus the benefit of their use has been the subject of scrutiny for the last year. This VA database linkage study describes the 90-day outcomes in older, over 65-year-old patients hospitalized with severe community-acquired pneumonia. They propensity score matched to balance confounders between azithromycin and no azithromycin groups using logistic regression and used Kaplan-Meier plots to analyze time to event. That was cardiovascular event and mortality. They report that in 73,690 patients who met criteria, 31,863 received azithromycin. 15.9% were admitted to ICU, 5.2% ventilated, and 4% received vasopressors. 90-day mortality was 17.4% in the azithromycin group compared to 22.3% in the non-azithromycin group. That's a p-value of less than 0.001. Any cardiovascular event occurred in 43% of azithromycin versus 42.7% for no azithromycin. And AMI occurred in 5.1 compared to 4.4% with no azithromycin, again a p-value of less than 0.001. So in summary, they conclude that in this national cohort study of veterans hospitalized with pneumonia, azithromycin use was consistently associated with decreased mortality and a slightly increased odds of AMI. This study supports the current RDSA and ATS guidelines for community-acquired pneumonia that recommend the use of azithromycin as part of combination therapy for patients hospitalized with pneumonia. Next in JAMA we have the coronary investigators with kidney function after off-pump or on-pump coronary artery bypass graft surgery, a randomized clinical trial. So this sub-study of the coronary trial presents data from a prospective RCT analyzing the effect of on- or off-pump CAGs on acute kidney injury and one-year kidney outcome in 2,932 patients. They report that the groups were matched at baseline, that there was no significant difference between the two groups on the composite outcome of death, non-fatal MI, stroke, or new dialysis for kidney failure within 30 days or one year post-randomization. That was a composite outcome. There was less primary post-operative acute kidney injury in the on-pump group compared to the off-pump group, and that was 17.5% versus 20.8% with a risk ratio of 0.83 confidence intervals 0.72 to 0.97 and a p-value of 0.01 and that acute kidney injury was defined as greater than or equal to 50% increase in serum creatinine from pre-randomization level. There was no difference in one year loss of kidney function that was 17.1% off pump 15.3% on pump. The uh, absolute risk reduction of acute kidney injury was greater with off pump in patients with chronic renal disease and again it wasn't significant at one year. So overall off-pump surgery was associated with a reduced incidence of acute kidney injury compared to on-pump. 
but this did not translate to improved long-term renal outcomes. The authors discuss a number of theories for why this may be the case, ranging from the possibility that mild injury doesn't translate to clinically significant disease, that there are confounders, or that treatment effects in the post-operative period make a difference. Okay, so moving on to another article in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Nighttime cross-coverage is associated with decreased intensive care unit mortality, a single-centre study. So the issues of handoff or nighttime intensive care and ICU staffing have attracted increasing interest. This observational cohort study examines cross-coverage when clinicians take over care for another clinician's patients at night time. So previously it has been reported that cross-cover leads to problems, that is, surprises, of which 75% could have been predicted in handover, so cross-cover might lead to poorer quality care. This prospective cohort study looked at the first seven days of 629 admissions to a 20-bed closed-model ICU in Ontario. Now, this unit had two separate teams. Each team had a consultant, fellow, and three to five residents who cross-covered at night. So the exposure was cross-covering status of the nighttime fellow, and that could either be a continuity of care fellow, that is the one who was looking after the patients during the day, or a cross-cover fellow who was not involved in the daytime care of that patient that day. And the outcomes were ICU mortality, which was the primary outcome, and then there were secondary outcomes such as nighttime decisions and treatment changes. They report that cross-covering by the fellow was associated with a decrease in ICU mortality, odds ratio of 0.77 per one day. That is a decrease in odds of ICU death by 23% for each day of additional nighttime cross-cover in the first seven days. There were more nighttime decisions, 19.3 versus 10.4, and that was made up of more CT scans, more antibiotics, and uh, more extubation plans. There was an increase in analgesia and transfusions. So what does this mean? Well, on face value, cross-covering fellows make more decisions, that is, that they're more involved, and this leads to a reduced mortality, an effect that is more pronounced by the end of the first week, perhaps when the treating team are no longer challenging their own decisions. Obviously there are limits from this single-centre design, that there are local culture factors, it's observational. However, it remains interesting as a study as it challenges the paradigm around handover. That is, the current paradigm, or the popular paradigm, says that handover may be bad and that our focus should be on reducing harm from handover rather than exploring the idea of benefit which is what this study did. Finally this study does not explore consultant cross-cover it was fellow cross-cover. Still very interesting. Okay again in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine we've got predicting a survival after ECMO for severe acute respiratory failure, the Respiratory Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation Survival Prediction Score, that is the RESP score. 
So the increasing use of ECMO for acute respiratory failure in the post-H1N1 CESAR trial, better technology environment, is leading to more evidence about how, when and who to apply this technology to. This ELSO registry study creates a model, the RESP score, which can be found on www.respscore.com to predict hospital survival at initiation of ECMO. There were 2,355 patients from 2000 to 2012. They identified candidate variables, that is factors before the initiation of ECMO that were identified using logistic regression and then assessed for analysis of collinearity through a correlation matrix. They constructed the RESP score using logistic regression and bootstrapping. They performed internal validation and external validation and they report that there was a 57% overall hospital survival in these 2,355 patients who received ECMO for acute respiratory failure. The factors associated with survival included bacterial pneumonia, viral pneumonia, asthma, aspiration, trauma and burns. The factors associated with not surviving included immunocompromised status, CNS dysfunction, acute non-pulmonary infection and cardiac arrest. Also neuromuscular blocking agents were associated with better survival while nitric, bicarb IV, high peak pressures, PaCO2 level and time from initiation of mechanical ventilation to ECMO were not. So the RESP score ended up with 12 parameters, age, immunocompromised status, duration of MV prior to ECMO, acute respiratory diagnosis group, CNS dysfunction, acute non-pulmonary infection, muscle relaxants, bicarb, cardiac arrest prior to ECMO, PACO2 and peak pressure to give a total score that ranged from minus 22 to 15. And they could predict hospital survival through the score. So this study provides a well-calibrated and discriminatory survival model for acute respiratory failure pre-ECMO using these 12 variables. Of interest, the diagnosis group had a high impact on survival, with survival benefit from bacterial and viral pneumonia and harm from non-pulmonary infection. In addition, high number of organ failures and days of mechanical ventilation prior to ECMO are associated with lower survival, suggesting earlier is better. In critical care medicine, we have early multimodal outcome prediction after cardiac arrest in patients treated with hypothermia. So the introduction of therapeutic hypothermia, TH, and its effects on neurological recovery following cardiac arrest has led to a changing landscape of neurological prognostication in this devastating condition. Although current recommendations suggest the use of a multimodal approach to prognostication to minimise false positive prediction of poor outcome, there is no critical evalu evaluation of the performance of these algorithms. This prospective cohort study from Lazan describes a cohort of 134 patients treated with therapeutic hypothermia, that is 33 degrees Celsius for 24 hours, then rewarmed over a four-year period. EEG, SSEPs, neuron-specific inlays, which is NSE, and neurological clinical assessment were performed routinely. Withdrawal of care decisions were made after 72 hours post-cardiac arrest in normothermia and off-sedation. 
Consideration for withdrawal occurred if two or more of the following were present. 1. Unreactive EEG background. 2. Treatment-resistant myoclonus. 3. Bilaterally absent SSEPs. 4. Incomplete return of the three brainstem reflexes, pupillary, oculocephalic and corneal. Serum NSE and EEG obtained during therapeutic hypothermia were not used for decisions about withdrawal. They report that there was a 45% mortality with 86% of survivors having a good outcome. That's a CPC score of 1 to 2. And no survivors remained in a vegetative state or a CPC of 4. The most robust predictors of survival in univariate analysis were clinical exam, which is the brainstem testing, EP data and NSE level. After logistic regression, identified absent hypothermic EEG activity, incomplete return of brainstem reflex, and serum NSE of greater than 33 microgram per litres as independent predictors of outcome. The combination of clinical exam, which was incomplete brainstem reflexes and myoclonus, hypothermic EEG reactivity, and peak serum NSE provided the best prediction of mortality or poor outcome, with SSEPs not adding value to NSE. None of the surviving patients had more than two of at least one brainstem reflex absent, myoclonus, NSE greater than 33, or non-reactive hypothermic EEG. So in summary, this study provides class 3 evidence that clinical examination, hypothermic EEG background reactivity, and serum NSE are independent outcome predictors in comatose patients surviving cardiac arrest, and that their combination provides the highest accuracy for prognostication of poor outcome and mortality, offering 100% specificity. SSEPs do not provide any additional information when added to that model. Although previous studies have shown background EEG reactivity is a predictor of outcome, this is the first to describe this relationship during therapeutic hypothermia. From here, the authors suggest testing this model in other centres and developing models that target good recovery rather than just predicting poor. So an interesting study. Okay, in intensive care medicine, we've got the International Guideline Development for the Determination of Death. And this is really interesting because this concept of death is made complex by our philosophical, religious and cultural differences, combined with advances in medicine and organ support therapies. And this is further impacted by the concept of organ transplantation. This report provides the first stage of an international guideline for the determination of death convened by the WHO and TTS, the Transplantation Society, in recognition of the need for clarity in practice and policy. What ensued is an interesting discussion document that describes and defines the neurological and circulatory sequence of death, the neurological dying process in patients who have suffered a catastrophic brain injury, and are receiving mechanical ventilation plus or minus other neuroprotective interventions was classified into three levels, N1, N2 and N3. 
with N1 being catastrophic brain injury with continuing deterioration and progressive loss of brain function despite intervention, N2 cessation of brain function but still possible that brain function could return spontaneously or be restored through intervention, and N3 cessation of brain function with no possibility to resume, that is the preconditions are met and confounding factors are absent and there is no effective treatment available so the patient has died. The circulatory sequence of dying was divided into two scenarios. The first is cardiac arrest where no resuscitation will occur and the second is where CPR may occur and again there were three levels. C1, cessation of circulation and breathing with absent pulse, heart and breath sounds um, and N2 occurs soon after this in less than 20 seconds. Circulation level 2 or C2 is cessation of circulation and breathing with no possibility of spontaneous resumption. And so after two to five minutes of cessation of circulation and breathing there is no published evidence of auto-resuscitation beyond this time and this is where we progress from N2 to N3. And C3 is cessation of circulation and breathing with no possibility of resumption whether or not CPR is implemented and this is N3. The forum described clinical and ancillary tests that constitute the minimum standard and additional information in each of the, these stages of the dying process and the forum participants agreed on the following operational definition of death. Death is the permanent loss of capacity for consciousness and all brainstem functions. This may result from permanent cessation of circulation or catastrophic brain injury. In the context of death determination, permanent refers to loss of function that cannot resume spontaneously and will not be restored through intervention. So there are some complex ideas and categories in this article and it's worth having a look at it just to become familiar with them. So lastly we're going to look at the review article in the New England Journal of Medicine Dying with Dignity in the Intensive Care Unit by Deborah Cook and Graham Rocker. Getting end-of-life care right in the developed world is clearly recognized as difficult. Balancing technological advances in life-sustaining therapies changing societal attitudes towards dying and the paternalism of a shared decision-making versus autonomy models and the advancement of palliative care is difficult. This review article addresses dying with dignity in ICU. It describes how the unparalleled distress of sudden critical illness with the sterile environment that we work in and unfamiliar clinicians creates an environment that makes effective communication even more difficult. What does it cover? It covers eliciting the values of patients, for example using facilitated values history to create authentic pictures of non-competent patient values. It covers communication, cited by patients as vital and a determinant of family caregiver satisfaction. It covers decision making, paternalistic versus shared versus autonomous, providing prognostic information, making recommendations, that is clinicians versus families, wishes regarding recommendations, eliciting preferences at the start, providing holistic care, the final steps, consequences for clinicians, 
And finally, end-of-life care as a quality improvement target. This is a well-written article on the core part of critical care practice. You must read it. Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club for the month of June 2014. Come to the website and have a look around. Otherwise, we'll see you next month. Thank you. Thank you.